Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. They interviewed prisoners, journalists, legal experts and lawyers. They also found compelling evidence of the existence of a Garda heavy gang who tortured prisoners to obtain evidence to convict them in the Special Criminal Court. They also found that the Special Criminal Court failed to find people Forest innocent under proven guilty. This week, it's part two of the experience of Oscar Brannock. Oscar is a writer, a poet, a human rights activist. In the late 1970s, Oscar was, along with two others, wrongly convicted of the Salons mail train robbery, what has been described by some as Ireland's version of the Birmingham Six case. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, review us on Apple or head to patreon.com, find Tordishak and support us in bringing all of this content to you. As we heard last week, Oscar was unlawfully detained, had many of his constitutional rights violated and was severely beaten while in Garda custody. To bring an end to this treatment, he made a false confession. In this second part, we'll look at the varied and unusual trials which took place. We'll talk to Dr Fergal Davis about the contentious Special Criminal Court. We'll hear from Oscar's brother Cormac, an incredibly talented musician, on how the events impacted on his family. My brother was arrested in 1976, in March 31st, 1976. I had just turned um, 13 years old. I had started secondary school, free of the uh, stresses and worries really of the world, uh, apart from worrying about my own little world, which was um, too, having too much um, homework. Cormac, Oscar's younger brother, took time to tell us about the impact on the rest of the family and on himself. He was a teenager when the events took place. But as he describes, it has only been in more recent decades that he has had the space to appreciate the impact of the events on him. For me, this is a really important aspect of the story. When one person is so mistreated, others feel that effect too. Cormac has in fact been diagnosed with PTSD relating to these events. As we'll discuss and hear later, he has used music and creativity to heal. And we're delighted to be able to play some of his beautiful music in this episode. The first impact I can recall is when I was attending the district court hearings uh, over the summer of 1976, which was a very hot summer. I recall I had we were required to do a lot of babysitting for my uh, for Oscar's uh, kids, and I wasn't happy about that. I can recall, but um, for me as a teenager, uh, I suppose you can say that I was catapulted into the adult life. And what I mean by that is um, obviously having to deal with something which was so big and bigger than me and also to fight back. And so the way I fought back was I would go out postering at night. Uh, so I'd go to school, I'd come back from school. Uh, I might do my homework or I mightn't do my homework. Uh, it, it wasn't por- important to me. So I would um, be campaigning at the streets at night and that would involve um, a series of uh, cat and mouse games with the special branch um, so we would be postering on lampposts uh, or maybe even painting slogans on walls but uh, it was a requirement and it was very cathartic actually <laughs> to be able to reach um, people with messages like that it was t- really 24 hours well I suppose when I came back from school um, it was 
six or seven hours anyway, and 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 all weekends, um, all time. So at that at that stage, my my parents decided to uh, join the ICCL, the Irish Council of Civil Liberties, and um, I mean there were there were posters always on the floor, there were megaphones, there were paintbrushes, there were paper clip clippings that my mother would cut out every day from the Irish press. There was around at the time, the Irish Times, the Irish Independent. So you just, you know, you got used to it and it was just a form of life. It was another episode in your life. You had to deal with it. You couldn't uh, put your head in the sand, uh, as it were. I can recall also walking with my father in that big tax march, and I think it was 1978. And so both of us wore, you know, big placards about the case. And most people were respectful. Some would throw hurl abuse at him. I certainly remember I said a Fianna Fáil or Desh where Oscar's wife and youngest son attended with myself and my sister and there were a lot of abusive comments there which was very hurtful. My father was a journalist in the Irish Independent. He was a sub-editor at the time so he had a lot of contacts and a lot of journalistic and legal contacts. Uh, he believed very much in the power of the pen uh, writing letters, uh, lobbying, um, and that's where we got our lobbying, I suppose, and our campaigning um, education. Salon's case was remanded into the distant future. The Director of Public Prosecutions, the DPP, and the Garda began to argue over the content of the Garda file. This was the file that laid out the case against us all. It was constructed by the Garda, who, along with the Minister for Justice, wanted everyone named in any state and charged with robbery. The DPP said, no, that would be illegal. They argued for 245 days until December the 9th, when the district court judge hearing the case threw it out as no evidence whatsoever, not one word was produced by Gardaí. But our freedom was short-lived. As we had civil actions pending against scores of Gardaí in the state, I believe they had to blacken us through a criminal conviction. It was the only chance they had of winning the civil actions against the jury. They could never admit to torture, kidnapping, perjury, and worse. I knew we would be rearrested and convicted before the special criminal court. I expected to get 20 years. I could have emigrated to Spain. I had family there, and no extradition existed between Ireland and Spain. But I was a human rights activist, and I felt I had a responsibility to expose what had happened, to safeguard the population at large. Ireland seemed to be slipping into a police state. The Gardaí persisted arguing with the DPP and perfecting the Gardaí file. We now know that Gardaí concocted with the statements and suppressed other evidence that would have destroyed their entire case. Then eight days later, the DPP, who had been reluctant for 245 days to prosecute us, was cajoled and manipulated into ordering the rearrest of five of us. On December the 17th, they arrested me, charged me again with the Salons robbery, and I was brought before the jury's special criminal court. As will be explained, the procedures of the court show why it is called special. The Special Criminal Court is a court provided for in the Constitution. So there's an article of the Constitution that sets out that this court can be established. But the detail about that court is set out in statute in the Offences Against the State Act 1939. Dr Fergal Davis of King's College London is the author of The History and Development of the Special Criminal Court. In essence, it is a non-jury emergency powers court. So it operates 
according to the Constitution and the legislation, when the ordinary courts are deemed to be inadequate, um, and that phrase is left relatively open, it was initially understood that that referred to terrorist threats, um, but almost immediately the court was used in other contexts as well. So it's a court where you have three judges, no jury, and it's designed to tackle exceptional circumstances uh, that might arise, that might face the state. The absence of the jury is the defining feature of the court, and Fergal explained the historical context for that. The first reason was that there was a perception in the 1920s and 1930s, so before the Special Criminal Court, that juries could be intimidated in uh, cases involving, particularly involving the IRA, uh, but later also involving other Republican groups and involving the blue shirts to a certain extent as well. It's also been suggested on a few occasions that there was a belief that even if the jury wasn't intimidated, that there was in the country at large at least a, a sneaking regard for um, kind of the, the, the terrorist organizations uh, like the IRA and that people might be unwilling to convict in, in those circumstances. So it existed from 1939 to 1946 it was sitting, but it was formally in existence up until the mid-1950s. Then it was re-established in 1961 to 62, and it was re-established again from 1972, and it's existed permanently since 1972 onwards. Today, when we think of the right to trial by jury, most people think of it as a right for the defendant, um, that they have a right to be tried by a jury of their peers. Uh, a lot of that comes from American television, to be honest, rather than anything legal that, that, that you or I might refer to. But there's a lot of legal commentary in America and Australia on the right to trial by jury actually being a right for the citizenry to be involved in the trial process. So if you think of the right to trial by jury as being a good way to ensure a fair trial then what you're saying is that the ordinary court process or a court process that doesn't involve members of the public could be corrupted and bringing the people into it provides a protection against that. In the US and in Australia, there's case law that refers to the right of the public to be involved in the process of determining guilt or innocence. So when you look at it that way, it's more about involving citizens in, in the process. So um, so the right to trial by jury, I think, is important because it is a protection for the rights of the accused, but you could protect those rights in other ways. But it's also a way of ensuring legitimacy of the system for the public at large by involving them in the process. So there is a broader public right involved as well, and I don't think we pay enough attention to that, to be honest. I often say to students as well, if, if the ordinary courts have been inadequate for most of the duration of the state and continuously since 1972, should we not be thinking about doing something about the ordinary courts? Like, is there a problem with the ordinary courts that we should be resolving? Between 1972 and 1980, 1,500 people were prosecuted in the Special Criminal Court, two thirds of whom were convicted. For a reference point, in the Central Criminal Court in 2019, one third of trials led to convictions. 
This raises difficult questions as to whether it was easier in some way to get a conviction before the Special Criminal Court. The 1977 Amnesty Report we discussed last week found that the Special Criminal Court proved willing to accept the testimony of a Garda over that of an accused person consistently. One retired detective I interviewed expressed the view that this court enabled those convictions. He said there was no way they could have convicted any of them without the Special Criminal Court. Their evidence would not have got past a jury. All the judges wanted was sufficient evidence to convict. I mean, so just because he thinks that doesn't mean it's true. Um, But the fact that that perception existed is, I think, problematic and worrying in terms of due process rights. And, and the rights of the accused. And it's not that surprising, really, because within the Offences Against the State Act, separate to the section which covers the Special Criminal Court, but the rules on evidence there, there are powers for Gardaí to give evidence um, and for that to be taken as proof. Uh, you could imagine a jury being more sceptical of that than a judge. Um, and when we say that in the 30s and 70s that people were worried that juries would be interfered with, they didn't have any evidence that juries were being interfered with. They hadn't, they hadn't conducted empirical evidence to find out were juries being nobbled. Um, they just thought it was likely. Lawyer Mary Robinson, later to become Irish president, called the Special Criminal Court a sentencing tribunal. You have the same judges hearing from the same people. You get the repeat player kind of idea that you have individuals hearing from the same uh, individuals all the time. Gardaí are well-schooled in how to give evidence. And if they're having to convince a judge who has heard this before, that may well be easier than having to try and convince a jury of 12 random people um, who, may, who may be more sceptical. A number of major events occurred as we waited for the second trial to commence. Our national and international campaign gathered strength. The Irish Times inquiry exposed the existence of a Garda heavy gang who used internationally and nationally illegal and unconstitutional torture against prisoners to obtain evidence to secure convictions. They listed many cases, including mine. Fianna Fáil from the opposition demanded an inquiry into the Salas case. An international commission of jurists sat in Dublin investigating the Special Criminal Court and the heavy gang and demanded a public inquiry. Amnesty International sent an international inquiry team to Ireland. The Justice Minister refused to meet them. They interviewed prisoners, journalists, legal experts and lawyers. They also found compelling evidence of the existence of a Garda heavy gang who tortured prisoners to obtain evidence to convict them in the Special Criminal Court. They also found that the Special Criminal Court failed to find people before it innocent until proven guilty. That the court twisted procedures against the accused in favour of the Garda they called for a public inquiry. Even some senior Gardaí complained to Gareth Fitzgerald of Fine Gael about the heavy gang. He in turn raised it with Fine Gael, Taoiseach, Liam Cosgrave. But in essence, all were ignored and no inquiry was held. A general election replaced the coalition government with a Fine Fáil one and with a huge majority. But the new government refused to hold an inquiry. In fact, many Gardaí involved in the Salins case were then promoted. The second trial ran from 19th January for 65 days. With the others, I was in custody every day for the duration of the trial before three judges. Bail was granted during lunch hour and overnight if the case ran on into the following day. Otherwise, bail was revoked. 
The Georgia Special Criminal Court heard from scores of state witnesses. A robbery had taken place, people had been arrested and interrogated, but none had been dealt with illegally or brutalized. The prisoners had all freely confessed to the robbery was claimed. None had asked for solicitors. The only evidence against any of the accused was signed, written and verbal inculpatory statements and one weak allegation of an alleged identification. As the trial progressed, it transpired that legal and custody rules were breached in every direction by the state. Constitutional rights were breached. When the prisoners who were refused solicitors appeared before the evening district court hearing to be charged after days in brutal custody, the public were illegally locked out. This questioned the legality of the hearing. There, Gardy engineered the prisoners be uniquely remanded back to the bridewell so as to place them two to a cell. Also against custody rules, it allowed Gardy to later claim the prisoners must have beaten each other up. At trial, we all pleaded not guilty, that the statements were untrue and that we had in effect been tortured. Independent medical evidence showed we all sustained injuries consistent with being beaten. But Gardy claimed that the prisoners must have beaten themselves up as they shared cells after the remand hearing. The false allegations of brutality were a plot to discredit the Gardaí, they claimed. But there was an anomaly in their story. Agreed Garda evidence showed that I was only ever in the presence of Gardaí, and according to independent medical evidence, that I sustained bruises not consistent with self-injury. There's a dimension of Oscar's trial which has become quite legendary among those who studied or had a passing interest in law. Indeed, his trial is referred to by many as the sleeping judge trial. It was clear that one Judge O'Connor was falling asleep during the trial. We called for a mistrial. We provided independent sworn evidence from journalists, solicitors and others. Despite our objections, the court retired to consider the allegations against themselves. And here we introduced to one of those reasons that the court is called the Special Criminal Court. The court reconvened to announce the claims had no standing. The judge was able to hear and follow evidence and that the case would continue. Their so-called view, in effect, was now transformed into a finding of fact and law and could not be overturned. We went to the High Court and they pointed out it was a finding of fact and therefore out of their jurisdiction. We went to the Supreme Court, presided over by ex-Fine Gael TD and failed presidential candidate Tom O'Higgins. He was also Chief Justice of Ireland and Deputy Leader of Fine Gael who were responsible for our torture. He berated our lawyers for taking the case, demanded they withdraw their complaint, refused to hear the application, pointed out it was a matter of fact that the judge was not asleep. So much for constitutional protection. So the case continued in the special criminal court before the sleeping judge. Thereafter, when the judge nodded off, court staff would make loud noises to wake him up, such as banging doors and dropping books on benches. I even saw more than once what appeared to be a judge kicking the sleeping judge under the table, followed by the immediate all-alert awakening of the judge, all bushy-eyed and bright. On another occasion, a journalist spotted him being elbowed by a fellow judge. I gave evidence of my kidnapping and torture from the witness box for a number of days. 65 days into the trial on June 16th, Judge O'Connor died. It transpired he had been ill for some time and was heavily medicated during the trial. Trial was adjourned and we were freed on bail. Our rearrest followed some days later. A breakthrough followed the new trial, which commenced on October 10th, 78. 
Early on, a state witness told the court that a statement alleged to be from her in the book of evidence, allegedly identifying one of the accused, was not true and was not said by her. She could not identify anyone. The false statement had been written by a detective. Another witness's so-called identification of the same prisoner described someone of different hair color, height and build. The prisoner had not signed any statement, but alleged torture and the court freedom. That left three of us. The same evidence as during the previous trial was given by Garda again with some interesting new information. One detective said an internal Garda so-called inquiry had asked all Garda involved in the case whether they had seen anyone being beaten or had they beaten anyone. They were advised to answer no. They all did, and the report was submitted to Garda headquarters and lost. Another detective who first arrested me said the first arrest was unconnected to the Salins robbery. If this were true, it would mean the second arrest, my kidnapping, would technically become the first arrest and therefore illegal. In turn, that would have meant my statement would have been attained in a legal detention. Unfortunately, his own evidence to the contrary from the first trial was read back to him. There was no repercussion for him. Another detective giving evidence swore he had not read his notes for months before giving evidence. I had seen him reading notes before he went into the witness box and putting them in his inside jacket pocket. I tipped off the examining barrister. To expose the consistent perjury of the detective, our barrister asked the detective to empty his pockets. And there was the notebook, the perfect expose of a perjurer. Of course, nothing happened to him either. This is perhaps a key dimension of a non-jury trial. Judges who work every single day in such cases could possibly become deeply aware of the difficulties involved in trying to successfully prosecute Republicans. And the system understood that Gardy had a very tough time trying to gather the necessary evidence to secure a prosecution. The fear is that judges moved from understanding to sympathetic because of their familiarity with the situation. The ongoing third trial was then interrupted by a trial within a trial, what I call the fourth trial. This was exclusively to determine if the statements were voluntary and whether they were to be allowed in as evidence against us. If the state failed to win this, then we would all be set free. Mickey Kelly and Brian McNally denied involvement in the robbery, gave alibi and detailed sworn evidence of their torture. Independent medical evidence supported their torture allegations. I had already given evidence. One witness, a state barrister at my high court appearance, turned defence witness and said I appeared dehumanised and severely distressed and not in possession of my full human faculties when he saw me in the High Court. He had appeared for the Irish government in their hooded men torture case against the British government in the European Court of Human Rights. The court ruled 51 days later. Yes, the statement of my co-accused Nicky Kelly would be allowed in as evidence against him as it was judged to be voluntary. In the case of his co-accused, Brian McNally, only a verbal admission, which he denied ever making, would be allowed in as evidence. They were not beaten, said the court. Their injuries must have been self-inflicted or inflicted by other prisoners, but not by Gardaí. And in my case, yes, I was illegally and unconstitutionally detained, but the court would still allow in any evidence against me emanating from the detention. Yes, the Gardaí told the truth when they said I was not beaten. My injuries must have been self-inflicted or inflicted by other prisoners, but not by Gardaí. Remember, I was always on my own, according to Gardaí. 
No, the Gardaí had not failed to give me a solicitor because they had never asked for one. Therefore, the statement was in. If the court had found otherwise, then the statement would have been automatically involuntary and would have had to have been excluded, meaning they would all have been acquitted. Another surprise accompanied the recommencement of the mail trial. A guard, the jailer, present during my first and second arrest, contradicted all previous state evidence. He swore I had asked for a solicitor at least once during the various incarcerations. This meant putting torture and illegal detention aside, but the statement from me was not legally voluntary because my rights to legal access had been denied. Yes, the court said, we accept the Garda's evidence, but we're still letting in the statement as legal and voluntary. No surprise there, I thought. Cormac recalls Oscar continuing to face his situation with outward optimism. You know, my brother kept on saying to me that, um, you know, if he did go down for something he didn't do, he thought it would be only for a very short period of time. It was something that he reiterated to me uh, a lot. And so it was a, uh, a shock and a surprise when he was sentenced to 12 years penal servitude. Escape was considered. I was offered the facility to flee the country. I refused. I wanted to continue fighting the case in public opinion to the Court of Appeal, to the European Court of Human Rights and beyond, if necessary. However, one of the accused, Nikki Kelly, accepted the offer and escaped to America. We were sentenced to a total of 33 years between us. Tried in absentia, Nikki Kelly was sentenced to 12 years penal servitude along with myself. The other prisoner, Brian McNally, received nine years. We spent 405 days on trial in total, over two years. Over 50 Gardaí gave evidence in the trial. In jail, we were regularly forced to slop out and submit to strip searching. I spent two months in solitary with the loss of all privileges when falsely accused of leading a failed escape. Prisoners later apologised to me, stating they had not invited me on escape as they knew I would not join it. They knew I was in jail to publicly expose the state conspiracy in the Sands case. My second son was born in this period. Granted a welfare visit with my ill wife, a newborn. The child was strip searched before and after the visit. Her 19-point appeal against conviction was unduly delayed for 17 and a half months, allegedly while the trial transcript was prepared. One of the reasons proffered by the government for the long delay was that a photocopying machine had broken down. The campaign for a released organised observance from international human rights organisation to attend the appeal. After a few days, we were freed, the reasons to be supplied later. Nicky Kelly decided to return home to clear his name. On arrival, he was immediately arrested and incarcerated in Port Leisha Jail. Some months later, our formal appeal court verdict was given. It quoted a then recent Supreme Court ruling, which obviously had not occurred at the time of our release and could not have been the only reason for our release. The court found that we had been oppressed and for that and other unspecified reasons, found the alleged voluntary statement should not have been admitted in evidence. No mention was made of torture. The Court of Criminal Appeal took into account four particular facts in deciding that these confessions should be excluded. A. Oscar's confession came very suddenly one morning, having denied all involvement for over 40 hours. B. That prior to the interview in which he was confessed, he was interviewed in a corridor for 20 minutes, 
which the court called the menacing environment of an underground passageway in a Garda station. See that the statement was made before 7am, after the accused had been disturbed from sleep, and D, the denial of the constitutional right to a solicitor. Consequently, there never having been any evidence against us, we were freed. Our criminal record was expunged. No apology or investigation followed. The cover-up continued as we continued campaigning on the case. The court did acknowledge that allegations of abuse had been made, but did not interfere with the trial court's finding of fact that these were untrue. The court did not accept, however, that the confession was voluntary. Without the confession, there was not enough evidence to uphold a conviction. But this was as far as the court went. It did not criticise the Gardaí in any way. There was no apology, no automatic compensation. Indeed, compensation would not be paid until 1993. Meanwhile, Nikki Kelly, having been refused his appeal and all further legal or political intervention, was forced to go on hunger strike to galvanise international support. It has since transpired that the DPP decided in a review of the case as far back as 1983, during Kelly's hunger strike, that none of us should ever have been charged. This review was suppressed as Kelly almost died on hunger strike. Eventually, 10 years later, the campaign continued to gain momentum. I'm reminded of that um stencil on in Blackrock, free Nikki Kelly with every packet of cornflakes. Well, when you were growing up at that time, there were these little plastic little presents and boxes of cornflakes. Uh, and so that where it came from. I remember being very annoyed about that and then thinking subsequently, well, what a wonderful, what a wonderful slogan, because everywhere you went, <laughs> you know, it, it was like a pop song. People would remember those words, the lyrics. The government requested a presidential pardon for Kelly. He was released in 93. No apology or investigation has followed into the state conspiracy in the Sands case. Okay, so the, the, the term stands for post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and that's the definition given in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and it's been like that for some years. PTSD is a term we hear a lot. UCC psychology lecturer Dr. Robert King explains. It's a collection of symptoms following uh, some kind of physical or emotional or psychological injury uh, that results in a sort of physiological and psychological response to it, which is very much like the pain response. Uh, it results in avoidance behaviour, quite often rumination. Uh, sometimes you can have intrusive thoughts and memories of the event itself. And in some ways, calling it a, a disorder is slightly misleading because it looks like a, a collection of things that's evolved to protect us from being in those kinds of situations again. So although it's a disorder in the sense that it's obviously very distressing for the person themselves, it is misleading because it's like thinking that, say, pain is a disorder. Now, obviously, we don't want people to be in pain. We're given painkillers. But the pain system telling you that you're damaged is actually working just as it was designed by evolution to do. And similarly, this is, this is a more complex set of systems. But basically, it's making you avoid those kinds of situations in future. Humans are sense-making creatures. The human memory isn't a recorder, it's a sense-making machine. And quite often, the sort of sense people make of trauma is by blaming themselves. It sort of, it, it kind of makes a sort of an internal logical sense of the person that the reason that they're experiencing this is somehow that they, they deserved it. But they almost certainly didn't. Um, it's, I think it's a bit like grief, in that grief never really goes away. But you become more 
used to it. You manage it. It, it. it doesn't go away because, you know, grief is based in love, isn't it? And you don't just stop loving people. Well, I mean, this is this is the fear version of it. And fear doesn't just go away, but you, you become a bit more used to it. Um, and I, I've, I've spoken to people, because um, I was... Uh, used to work with Amnesty International. I've yeah, spoken to people who've been tortured, and uh, the trauma from that doesn't just go away. I mean, you, you're with that forever. You know. it's, it's important to note that it's not just about physical pain, um, although it is about that. It's about feelings of loss of control. It's about feelings of injustice. It's about feeling that you know, how dare they? Uh, that certain boundaries get crossed, and all these kinds of things. There's an awful, there's a complex lot of stuff that's going on there. The following years meant we and our families all faced resultant deteriorating health issues. Economically, we were decimated. Brian McNally suffers a heart condition and his wife died prematurely from heart issues. Nikki Kelly's forced hunger strike affects his daily health. I suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, which was historically diagnosed as the Vietnam vet's illness. Cormac also suffers from PTSD and he talked us through the toll these events can have on loved ones. There's always a knock-on effect for um, for pain and suffering. So uh, obviously Oscar is the, the person who was in the prison, who suffered the beatings, who spent two years in prison, who spent four years uh, dealing with the case and who uh, fought it politically and had to... Uh, put on a brave face. Then you have my family, my elderly parents who were um, in their 60s at the time, uh, my mother, whose son was imprisoned, um, my father, who, whilst he was a Republican, etc., still, we felt, believed in the system. Mm. When we went on the, on the day of the sentencing, the Special Criminal Court, I remember him telling me that he had heard it from a good source that Oscar would be released, and then he was quite surprised when he wasn't. Uh, so when he said that he would be released on his appeal, I didn't believe him, <laughs> and thankfully he was. Um, I was the youngest. Um, I, uh, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really go to counselling. I mean, in those days, you did not go to counselling. Counselling was for nuts, people who were loopers which is a terrible attitude to have. We're a bit more educated and, and, and wise these days, but that was the view. So you just got on with it. You know, that was the attitude you get on with it. And I, I turned to music. Obviously, when I was much younger, seeing the case being splashed across the papers, etc. I mean, you know, I, I, I turned inwardly and, and, and that has an effect, you know, and then you meet somebody and that, and that lasted a while and that was okay, but the cracks were beginning to appear. So I went to counselling and I, and I did six years of counselling. And the result of that counselling was I decided that I would try and forgive because there is a power in that. I find it very hard to forgive the state, but I would like to certainly try and forgive the humans because we're all frail and we're all imperfect people. And, you know, the orders that these police, who are called, who are known as the heavy gang, got to beat and extract um, statements from people in, in prison, they, I am convinced that they, come, they came from the top. So they came from the very top, the Taoiseach, his, his, his co-ministers, his, his, um, his government, and was subsequently covered up by other governments. 
So whilst this case and trauma doesn't uh, have to define me, it is certainly part of me and it will always be with me. And I think if I tried to deny that, I would be very foolish. For Cormac, music was his way through. It was really in my 40s that I thought I should do something about this. So I then applied to the Arts Council for funding. And thankfully, they gave me the funding. I said that I wanted to explore how this case affected on me through music. Cormac received multiple grants, collaborating with artists, both in music and film, and producing a number of pieces. A short film, an album, and an award-winning RTE documentary can all be found at thewhistleblower.ie. For Oscar, the case carried on through the 90s and beyond, trying to access all the evidence which would help achieve accountability. For the following years, the state engaged in protracted, argumentative and disruptive defence in the civil actions. During that time, modern investigative techniques identified the actual Gardaí who authored the statements. In the face of all this, and with the belief that an inquiry was imminent, the cases were settled in 1993. Only lately, I have discovered malafides on the part of the state. They illegally suppressed evidence from us that we were entitled to, and that was certainly relevant to our civil actions. The case commenced 44 years ago when I was 25. I am now almost 70. Dealt with promptly at the time, it might have prevented the cancer that engulfed the Gardaí in later years. But the case is only as old as any morning I and the population awake. Then we live another day that our rights are still being denied. That it's okay for state agents to torture and frame people and to cover it up. It's okay to ignore national and international laws by refusing to hold a public impartial statutory inquiry and to act on its findings. They do this in our name. So there's an important question here. Is this still relevant? Could this still happen? Well, I think we should break this down into two parts. First is the abuse Oscar suffered in detention. In 1978, a commission was established to review safeguards of persons in custody. It made widespread recommendations, but these were not readily acted upon. In fact, it was not until after the Kerry Baby case in 1984 and the false confessions that Joanne Hayes and her family made any small changes would be made. And largely, it seems the public was okay with this. A study conducted by Bowen and York in 1987 was revealing. It found that 57% of respondents felt the police tended to abuse suspects either physically or mentally. And 40% believed the police may cover up facts. But at the same time, the study found that 62% were either quite satisfied or very satisfied with the force, indicating clearly that while people accepted that such things happened, it didn't impact on their confidence in the force. So if that's how society felt, where is the impetus to change? Reform has been slow. Regulations dealing with the treatment of persons in custody were introduced in 1987. And it was only in the late 90s that recording of interviews was introduced. In 2014, lawyers were permitted to attend those interviews for the first time. And as we heard two weeks ago from our child detainee, Oscar, there's what happens on the way to the station as well. 
In 2018, the murder trial of Damien McLaughlin for the killing of a prison officer in Northern Ireland collapsed. The case was predominantly based on a statement made by a Mr Brady while under arrest and being interviewed by Gardaí in 2012. Ruling the statement inadmissible and thereby collapsing the case, Mr Justice Colton said the profanities used by the interviewers were excessive and oppressive and that the interviews were conducted in such a way as to undermine the suspect's right to silence. In the course of the interviews, the suspect was subject to threats and inducements. He held that any conviction based on that evidence would be unsafe. And that happened within the last 10 years with many of the safeguards in place. So treatment in custody is undoubtedly better, but we've still a way to go. The second point is the ability to access accountability for Garda wrongdoing. There have been some changes here. The Garda Síochána Ombudsman Commission came into being in 2007 and for the first time it enabled independent investigations of Garda wrongdoing. Civil actions also continue to be an option and every year millions is paid out in compensation for Garda activities. Over the last two decades we've also seen numerous tribunals established to examine Garda activities and calls for many others. The thing that always strikes me about tribunals though is that we shouldn't need them. We should have mechanisms in place that work, that access truth, that provide accountability without having to resort to such lengthy, expensive, exceptional measures. The family continue to call for an apology. I will fight and I will fight and assist Oscar where possible. Uh, I'm 57 now. You know, Oscar's in his late 60s. You know, how, how much more are we expected to fight? So, I, you know, for, for accountability, for true accountability to happen, I think the state needs to own up, first of all, that there was a heavy gang, that the heavy gang was a product, uh, certainly at the time, uh, it could not have existed without the support and the financial support and the protection of the government. In July 2019, the ICCL and Amnesty International issued a joint statement calling for an inquiry into the case. They said, as we advance with the comprehensive process of Garda reform, we must address outstanding abuses from the past if public confidence in policing is to be restored. Cases like Salins and Kerry Babies will continue to haunt our society and hold back reform of our justice system until they are properly investigated and the truth is uncovered. I see Ireland like a sick patient on a uh, on a couch with a um, psychologist, you know, and, and looking down at Ireland and going, Jesus Christ, do you ever there? Many will say it's been too long since Oscar's detention to really examine it, but two recent events show us that this is simply not true. The Hooded Men case and the Kerry Baby case. In December 1971, the Irish state took the very unusual step of lodging a case against the UK in the European Court of Human Rights, claiming that the rights of Irish citizens have been abused in police stations in Belfast. In 1978, the ECHR accepted that the five techniques, wall standing, hooding, loud noises, sleep and food deprivation, had been used against these men, and that this constituted inhuman and degrading treatment. There was disappointment at the time that the court did not rule that this treatment constituted torture. The men involved have long claimed that it should have been called torture. In 2014, the Irish government agreeing with the men 
took the case back to the ECHR to have that decision overturned. They were unsuccessful in their efforts. So not only was the state actively challenging brutal behaviour by police in another state at the exact same time that Oscar was arrested, but they have also been willing to revisit that case and make those arguments again to the ECHR in the last few years. And many listeners will be familiar with the Kerry Babies case. In January 2018, Gardy and the Taoiseach apologised to Joanne Hayes, a woman who falsely confessed to the murder of a baby in 1984, following detention by members of the heavy gang. In making that apology, Gardy stated, On behalf of Angarda Siakana, I would like to sincerely apologise to Ms Hayes for that, as well as the awful stress and pain she has been put through as a result of the original investigation into this matter. It is accepted that the original investigation fell short of what was required and expected of a professional police service. This came after a cold case review into the deaths of the babies, which has never been solved. And it's worth remembering that while the IRA claimed responsibility for the robbery, no one else has been convicted of the Salas mail train robbery. Some suggest Oscar's case is too long ago to be able to revisit or to apologise or to hold the force to account. But both of these cases, which resonate deeply with Oscar's experience, override any such suggestions. Oscar is not done and is currently working with his legal team to take this further. As part of the ongoing campaign for a public inquiry into the case, submissions are being prepared for the United Nations. Should the Minister for Justice refuse an imminent petition for a statutory public inquiry for myself, I will go to the European Court of Human Rights. Such an inquiry is supported by both the European Court of Human Rights and the UN. www.salinsinquirynow.ie is where you can obtain information on the ongoing campaign and various award-winning programmes and bestsellers on the case. It also lists some of the names of prominent national and international individuals and organisations, including Nobel Prize winners, lawyers and judges, ex-presidents and celebrities. Funding options are available there. And it's where you can contact us directly with offers of much welcomed help. An upcoming expose on the case is imminent from myself called Out of the Tunnel. It will be the first inside analysis of the case. It will review and unravel information that explains the state's continuing cover-up in the silence case. In essence, it will reveal evidence on the secret the state fears will be revealed. Technically, politically and legally, the silence case could happen again any day. The unwillingness to hold Gardy to account for the actions of the heavy gang had consequences. It sent a message to serving Gardy that such wrongdoing could go unpunished. It told the public that certain policing methods were acceptable. The bar for what was acceptable from the police was set too low. For me, these cases are not of the past. In a great many ways, the Irish state did great harm to its own citizens in the 20th century. Mother and baby homes, borstals, industrial schools, magdalene laundries, symphysiotomy, vaginal mesh, cancer screening, forced adoption. It's a long list of harm. We cannot, I suggest, mature as a state if we do not accept and apologise for 
that wrongdoing. I'm indebted to Oscar and Cormac for sharing their experiences with me. I'm grateful to Dr. Robert King and Dr. Fergal Davis for helping us to understand things a bit more. And a big thanks to Tony Groves and Brian at Grooves Ahead for producing this. Next week, we'll be hearing from Stephanie Gonzalez, a Chilean student who was detained for 12 days when she tried to enter the state this summer. As ever, please go to patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack to support this work. You can follow us on Twitter or get in touch with your story at Policed Podcast. <laughs>